So I am Reed Metcalf, and I am one of the uh, associate pastors here. Um, and I am super excited to be preaching today. Come on, iPad, work with me. Um, we're, doing, uh, we're doing the Armor of God. This is a series that we've been in for a couple of weeks now. And it's based on... Um, there is just not enough room on this podium. My goodness. So uh, this is based on a passage from uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, specifically Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, which reads, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on the evil day and having prevailed against everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Did you get the part about standing? <laughs> stand, therefore, and belt your, wa your waist with truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and lace up your sandals in preparation for the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith which you will be able to, uh, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and uh, in every prayer and supplication, and to that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. So today I get to talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this is super appropriate, right? Um, if you needed a definition for what the sword of the Spirit is, Paul tells you that it is the word of God. Um, and it's so appropriate because I am a biblical studies teacher. So, like, this is right up my alley. This is what I do for a living. Um, and I was super excited that John asked me because, obviously, it's appropriate. But also swords. Swords, guys. What guy doesn't want to get invited to talk for 35 minutes about swords? It does not matter what age you are. You know that you, when no one's looking and you have a broom, you are ready to fight somebody, right? Um, and what's really funny is John asked, and I was like, awesome, swords. And like two weeks later, I was like, oh my gosh, John, I forgot that I used to be a fencer in college. <laughs> I actually qualified for the Division I fencing team at my university and I filled out the enormous stack of NCAA paperwork that says you won't get paid for all of the work that you're gonna do. Um, and then the program got cut because it was 2008 and the market crashed, so I never actually like, got to fence with the team. Um, but so I actually know how to sword fight. So, I had to break out my old swords, right? So this is, uh, this is a foil. This is an Olympic foil. Uh, in Olympic fencing, there are three types of, um, of swords. 
um, that you get to compete with, uh, Foil, Epe, and Saber. I didn't like Epe, it wasn't very fun, and I'll spare you the details. This is the classic one that most people think of, right? But there is also the Saber, and this was my favorite because the Saber is, is based on um, cavalry swords, you know, slashing. So with this guy, it is all about using, for those of you who don't know how to use a sword, the pointy end goes in the other guy. Um, but this really only has the pointy end. And it was based on a time when the majority of the sword was really that. It was a long thing, and the deadly part was just the end. But when you are riding on a horse, there is blade all the way down to here. Because you are not just stabbing, you're riding through and you're slashing, right? And this one was really fun to use um, in Olympic fencing. Now, these are awesome. They're made of real steel. They're blunt, so they theoretically wouldn't hurt you, but they're still a little dangerous. So I am going to put these down for a minute so that I don't actually hurt myself or somebody else. And of course, there's got to be some demonstration of swords, right? So I'm going to do a little bit of a fencing lesson. And I had a volunteer this morning, my seven-year-old son, Finn, is very into all things medieval. He didn't know I was preaching on swords today, and this is how he came out of his bedroom this morning. <laughs> I was sitting at the kitchen table, just reviewing my sermon, and Finn comes out and says, Dad, fight me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, how can you not want to smack that kid with a piece of foam sword, right? Um, and when I told him, do you know that I was actually going to preach on swords today? He was like, oh, please, Dad, let me fight you on stage. And I said, well, it kind of doesn't make sense because I have a height advantage over you, right? So um, with that said, I'm going to need a member of the audience. Who would like to get in a sword fight? And so many guys' hands just went up in the air. <laughs> I think I'm going to pick this young man in the front row. Come on up here. And just so we don't hurt ourselves, <laughs> you get to be the guy who gets cut in half. Um, <laughs> I get the evil guy. There's, there's nothing to it. Don't think too far into it. I mean, maybe you could. <laughs> so, do you understand the basics, uh, John? Yeah. Do you do you understand the basics of the sword fighting? Just stab. The yeah. Person. Yeah. Stab. <laughs> Do you want to stretch before we do this? You... Uh, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, John, I am going to ask you to try and hit me. Okay. Whenever you're ready. And, I, and just take one, one attempt, and afterwards I'm going to talk about how you did. Sound good? Okay. All right. Ready? Ready. Okay. Oh, that was good. Like move back. Yeah, it was good. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you all right? Do you need a bandage? So, so one of the most important principles in sword fighting, a lot of us think it's all about how you use your arm, right? And John did that the first time. The very first time, he went, 
But the real thing with sword fighting, with fencing, is it's all about your, foot, your footwork. So if you really want to attack somebody, you don't attack them like that, right? My arm moves kind of slow, right? What you do is, it is all on your back leg. And that's one reason why with Olympic fencers, you will always see them like this. This leg has to be coiled so that you can close that distance fast, right? Because it's a lot faster than that, right? The other thing is John said immediately, why'd you move back? So, is that frowned upon in sword fighting to ask that question? Not really, but the most important part of sword fighting is don't get stabbed. So, <laughs> so of course, one of the main things that you want to do is you want to keep distance between you and the other guy. Now, I'm really proud of you, John, because what you didn't do is this and lead with your body. Because what you do to defend against that when someone comes at you like this is you let them run into your sword. <laughs> and that's like the number one thing that beginning fencers do. So they don't lead with the point. They think, I gotta have it curled back here, and then I step in, and then I get him. And the other guy doesn't have to do anything. You will walk into the point. But now, we have been talking about Olympic fencing. So John, we doing that. Do, <laughs> do me a favor and don't stab me with that. I just want you to feel that, right? So one thing that a lot of people think that they need to do with this sword is they need to move their arm a lot. I want you to just put your arm out, wiggle your fingers a little bit. Look at how much movement there is. Just tighten your grip a smidge, and it moves the point. It's all in, as they say, it's all in the wrist, right? There's not a lot of arm movement. Try to hold that out at arm's length and try and move your fingers. It doesn't move quite as easy, right? Which one's heavier? By far, right? So this is, this is a blunt, right? It's fake. This is all nylon. It's not real steel. This is real steel. And this one probably weighs three times as much, right? If I were to try and take this, this is a medieval longsword, by the way. If I were to take this medieval longsword and try to fence with it, not only would my shoulder get super tired, but it wouldn't work the same way. It's way too heavy. It doesn't have the same mechanics as this. Thank you so much, yeah, John. Absolutely. Thank you for not dying. <laughs> but the whole point of that, of using these different swords, is to show you that here's this deadly weapon, right? And a lot of us think we know what it's about. I know how to use a sword, put the pointy end in the other guy. But you don't think of things like use your feet, move with your legs instead of, you know, stab with your legs instead of your arm. Um, adjust your aim not with your shoulder, but with your wrist, right? If you don't know how to use the sword, it's more dangerous to you and the people on your side than it is to the enemy, all right? And the same is true of the Bible. If you don't know how to use it, it is not effective. And the same goes for the Word of God. Uh, Monica, can you run me up my water, please? I'm already talking way too much. 
thank you. Um, so today we are going to talk about what the Word of God is and how we use it. Um, so this is going to be sort of half sermon and half introduction to biblical studies, like a lot of what I would teach my students in a normal class. Um, so because I want you to be well-equipped to be able to use the Word of God as it is supposed to be used. So we'll start with that first question. What is the Word of God? Man, could I have made that font any smaller? <laughs> going to be a long morning for you guys. Sorry. <laughs> so the Word of God, when Paul was writing Ephesians, right? He says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Word of God, when Paul was writing, were the books that we now know as the Old Testament. Most of the New Testament, when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, did not exist yet. Paul wrote the, Ephesians, wrote the letter to the Ephesians before the earliest gospel was written, so before the gospel of Mark. That means it was also before Matthew, Luke, Luke's second book, Acts. So when Paul says the word of God, he's not thinking, oh, the books of the New Testament. He's helping write the New Testament right now, right? Um, so that is what is happening there. And Jews like Paul and the apostles, and even after they started believing in Christ, they still considered themselves Jews. Um, <clears throat> they believed that God had spoken through specific prophets and specific documents. Now, these prophets, there were some prophets who wrote their stuff down, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you know these names. Um, but then other writings as well. The Proverbs, the Psalms, um, the Book of Chronicles, right? Chronicles 1 and 2. Um, and they believed that God had tried to speak through these documents to his people. So they cherished these documents, they copied them to distribute more of them, um, they studied them, and this was a weird thing, all right? For Jews and Christians, we sort of think of Holy Scripture, some sort of sacred writing, as a normal thing. There were no sacred texts for Greeks. There were no sacred texts for Romans. They didn't have a Bible. That was a specifically Jewish thing. And then, of course, later, a Christian thing, because Christianity grew out of Judaism. Um, and for the Jews, they had three categories of Scripture. And it wasn't like one was better than the other. It was just how they grouped them together. They had the law, which was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had the prophets, which included the big names, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, but then also some books that we might not necessarily think immediately is like, oh yeah, that's a prophet's writing. Samuel, um, uh, Kings, those are considered prophet's books. Um, and then the writings, which are everything else that we have in the Old Testament. So they had those three things. The law, the prophets, the writings. And I bring that up because it's really important for where we're going later, Okay. Now, what about our own Bible? What about the New Testament? 
How did we get it and how can we trust it? You can ask my wife, this is something I am way too passionate about. I love talking about this. So I'm gonna try and keep it less than a minute on how we got the New Testament and why we can trust it. Um, the documents that we now call the New Testament showed up starting in about the year 48, um, is when we think the first book of the New Testament was written, 1 Thessalonians. Um, and they continue to be written through the end of the first century. Now, they are written by guys like Paul and Peter, um, who are apostles, right? Well-known apostles, John. And they're written to Christian communities. But they're just, they're not like tweeting this out across the world, right? They're writing to groups of people who had seen Jesus, who had talked with Jesus. Not all of the communities were filled with people who'd, who'd seen Christ, right? But a lot of them knew Jesus. A lot of them knew the apostles. So when they get this document, and this is a, this is a society where most people can't read. Everything that they know, they have to remember. They get really, really, really good at remembering stuff. They have the stories of Jesus. They have their memories of Jesus. They have their memories of what Paul said in person or what John said in person or what they learned from um, Peter when he came to visit once, right? They remember these things. And when they see a document that tells the same story that they are used to hearing, they say, yeah, this counts. This is good. And if they get something where they say, that doesn't sound right, they get rid of it. And they stop using it. So the community already knows the teachings of Jesus, right? And then when they see something come across their desk, a letter, a gospel, whatever, that to them says, yeah, this is true. This is what we remember of Jesus. They keep it, they copy it, they study it, and it continues. And there's this unbroken line of people copying the things that they remember as true of Jesus. So I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit safeguarded these documents through these human communities, right? People who had seen Jesus, who committed themselves to his preaching, his teaching, that the Holy Spirit works through those communities to keep the documents alive for us today. And it goes all the way down the line. Again, I could talk about this all day, so if you have more questions about that, please come talk to me and get ready for a long talk. Because this is like an area of expertise for me. I love this stuff. But so that's what the Word of God is. They are communication from God to his people, and they're vetted, right? They are vetted by the community saying, yeah, this is true of what we know of Jesus. That's why we can trust the Old and the New Testaments. Now, how do we use them? As a Bible teacher, I want to make sure that everybody uses the Bible well. Basically, how to properly use the sword of the Spirit without stabbing yourself or your friend, right? Because there is a long history of people misusing the Bible, Sometimes unintentionally, right? Sometimes they misuse it for their own gain. And I'm sure that many of you have your own examples that come to mind. Um, and I don't have to bring those up for you, but 
we'll come back to this a little bit later. So again, a sword is dangerous if it's misused, right? So today we are going to talk about five simple principles for reading the Bible. And I tried to be really pithy. You know, John is really great at coming up with these nice little sayings of like, oh man, it almost rhymes, or it does rhyme. And that's a way that you can remember. I'm so bad at that. So sorry, these principles are not like, they're not rhymes, they're not in verse. I'll leave that to John if he really wants to do that. He's better at it than I am. But these are the same things that I try and teach college and seminary students when they first start reading uh, the New Testament or the Old Testament in my classes. Rule number one, the Old Testament and the New Testament are friends. Now, this is about as short and pithy as I could get um, because friends doesn't quite sound right. But what I think a lot of people do, and again, there are examples here, there, and everywhere, is that they think that the New Testament replaces the Old Testament or that what the New Testament teaches is different than what the Old Testament teaches. And that's absolutely not true. It's 100% wrong. Um, and if you want evidence for this, we turn to the New Testament itself, all right? Jesus and all of the authors of the New Testament rely so heavily on the Old Testament. They take the Old Testament for granted. It's their starting point. Nothing makes sense without it. Take a look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? There's nothing more Jesus than the Sermon on the Mount. Like, it's, it is his main block of teaching that most of us point to for how we live our lives. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. There are two of those categories, right? Two of the three categories of the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. He continues on, and I don't have this up on the slide, but he says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And that's Matthew 5, 17 through 18. And what Jesus does in this section of scripture is he goes on and he says, let's dive a little bit deeper. Let's talk more about what these commandments play out to be. And he basically says, y'all could do a better job of following, following the Old Testament, right? He sort of ramps it up more than the people themselves thought they needed to. But he also says in the Gospel of John, as he's discussing with opponents who he is, he says, if you believed Moses, and the people at this time thought that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus doesn't say, forget that Moses guy. He was like a thousand years ago. Who cares? He says, nope, I am fulfilling what Moses talked about. All right? And a lot of people will say, okay, well, that's fine. That's what Jesus says. Uh, but 
you know, Paul, in his letters, he doesn't like the law. And he tries to get rid of the law. Or he tells us that the law doesn't matter anymore. Okay? Here's Paul in Romans 3. And he says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Our faith in Jesus, right? He says, by no means. And what this little phrase, by no means, that it does not even come close to capturing what Paul is trying to say. He is saying so emphatically, absolutely no way on heaven or on earth, no way. No way. On the contrary, we uphold the law because of our faith. All right? Some people say, okay, well, in Romans, he's not nearly as bad at it as he is in Galatians. In Galatians, he really doesn't like the law. Well, in Galatians, Paul actually isn't arguing against the Old Testament and the law, but rather he's arguing against a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. And you know how he combats that bad understanding of the Old Testament? With a different interpretation of the Old Testament. And the same happens in all of the New Testament books. Hebrews has this long section where it quotes all these heroes of the faith who come from Genesis and Judges and all over the place in the Old Testament. First Peter has quotations all through it from Isaiah, Hosea, Genesis, the Psalms. You read the book of Revelation and it doesn't make sense unless you know your Old Testament really well because it's using tons of imagery from Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and Genesis. The, the New Testament authors were saturated. They were soaked in the Old Testament. And for them, the Old Testament and the New Testament tell the same story. Jesus is the climax of the story, right? But we actually only understand why Jesus matters because of the Old Testament. If you don't read the Old Testament, you don't get the significance of Jesus. So, if your reading of the New Testament, this is the main, the main bit that I want you to take away from this section. If your reading of the New Testament makes you throw out the Old Testament, you are reading the New Testament wrongly. This is incorrect. They need to complement each other, not replace or kick out each other. And again, if you guys have any questions about this, please feel free to come up and ask me later. But so now that here's the question of how do we read rightly? And that brings us to point number two. Remember that the world of the Bible was way different than ours. Your own understanding of your job, your education, your family life, I, I'm telling you right now, it could not be more different than what the reality was for these people who existed in New Testament and Old Testament times. For instance, people did not have the opportunity to accumulate wealth. The idea of, oh, you should make a budget and you should save, that was not an option. Almost all of these people lived at or below the subsistence level. They were living, as we would say today, paycheck to paycheck, field to table, and sometimes they would have enough to pay their taxes. Most people lived below 
what you needed on a daily basis to have a healthy life. Poverty was a real thing. And when you say, man, that sounds so corrupt, they should have changed it. Most ordinary citizens had no way of influencing the government. We think, ah, but Rome had senators. Okay, senator was a class of people. It was not an elected official. Ordinary people didn't get to vote. They didn't have a way to introduce a law. They didn't have a way to petition their government. They had no electricity. They had no cars. They had no surplus money. They had no health care of any sort. Doctors were not really doctors, right? So everything that you think about how the world works is probably different than how they think the world works. They did not value children. Children were seen as a burden and, if necessary, expendable. If you were barely getting by with three kids and you happened to end up with a fourth kid, you would get rid of one of your kids. And not in, like, you put them up for adoption. You take them outside the city gate and you leave them. That's the reality of the world that these people lived in. It's just so different. So when you're reading the New Testament, just or the Old Testament, don't understand, don't assume that your understanding of how the world works is how it worked for them. And if you want, uh, if you want some good resources to like help you get more into the context, just to understand these things, like what was it like to live in the Roman Empire? What was it like to live as a farmer? Um, good study Bibles, man. Get yourself a study Bible. The CEB study Bible, the NRSV study Bible, they will help so much. Read the footnotes. They're amazing. And that's one thing that you can do to really help you with your own Bible study. <clears throat> now, number three, and this is one that I think a lot of people struggle with. Read the books of the Bible like you would read any other book. Top to bottom, left to right, group the words together to make a sentence, and then the sentences together to make a paragraph, and the paragraph together to make a whole story or a whole argument. Because when you rip one part of the Bible out from its paragraph, you miss the point. If you take just one part of Romans and you say, well, I've got this one verse, you're going to miss a 16-chapter argument that Paul has to try and convince his people of a specific thing, right? My grandpa, I loved this man dearly, and I have to tell this story because it's so funny. Most people here have seen Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, heard one whoop. Um, the rest of you need to do some homework. Go watch the Lord of the Rings. But you start it with, the first movie, Fellowship of the Ring, and then you watch The Two Towers, and then you watch Return of the King, right? What? Don't watch the Hobbit movies. <laughs> the Hobbit movies are bad. If you're going to read the books, read The Hobbit first. And when I first started reading Lord of the Rings, I picked it up with Lord of the Rings, and my mom said, hang on, start with The Hobbit, and then read Lord of the Rings. My grandpa got back from a trip once, and as he's unloading his suitcase, out comes a copy of The Return of the King, the third part of The Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, oh, Grandpa, you're reading Lord of the Rings? He said, well, 
I picked this up in the airport bookstore as I was trying to make my plane, and I have no idea what is happening. <laughs> and I was like, well, have you read the other two books? And he said, what other two books? <laughs> He's like, there are all these weird names, and for some reason someone's on a horse, and they're trying to get to this one city, and I have no idea what's happening. You would not start reading Re The Lord of the Rings at Return of the King. So why do you start reading the book of Romans in chapter 12? You get it? So we start at the beginning of the book and we read straight through so that we can get the whole point. It helps us understand the entire argument, the entire story, because if we just read Jesus' crucifixion, it just sounds like an execution story, and we don't get why it's important. Everything that started back in Luke 1, or John 1, or Mark 1, or Matthew 1, leads up to why the crucifixion is necessary, and what it means for us. So, start at the beginning, read to the end, and read the whole thing. I know it's really hard with some of the longer books, like Isaiah, but it's important right? And it's especially important when it comes to a book like Romans or Galatians. This happens in Paul all the time. People think, Paul wrote this one, Paul wrote that one. Must be talking about the same thing. Well, in the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to people that he knew, it was one of his congregations, and they were starting to think that their salvation rests on being circumcised, keeping the Sabbath, following traditional food laws instead of trusting in Jesus. And Paul has to say, hang on, that's not how this works. In the book of Romans, Paul is writing to people that he's never met before, ever. And he's saying, okay, here's what's going on with our faith, is that our faith saves people who both follow the law and people who don't follow the law. Those are two very different conversations, right? That's like saying, oh man, my parents told me never touch the stove. And now your mom's saying, I asked you to boil water for the spaghetti. And you're like, but you said never touch the stove. It's like, those were two different conversations. Why are you making them one thing? Because when you're three, don't touch the stove. When you're 16 and mom's working a job and, you're, and is trying to put it together dinner, help a lady out, right? <laughs> so pay attention to what each book is saying. Reading them from start to finish helps us get the whole point. Y'all are doing great. We only have a little bit more to go. And number four, this is, goes along with the start to finish thing. Sit with the tough parts of the Bible. Because sometimes we'll be reading along and we'll say, man, I don't understand what's happening here, but you know what? I get the Gospel of John really well, so I'm just going to jump over there and use the Gospel of John to make sense of what's happening here in 2 Kings. What? That, when you do that, you short-circuit what God is trying to teach you in that book. The one that gets, gets this treatment all the time is the book of Job. Job is a hard book to read. It is not fun. You have a guy who seems to be 
perfectly innocent, have a bunch of really horrible stuff happen to him. And he says, God, what is going on? And a lot of people will get to like chapter 8 of Job and then say, you know what is really good? Romans chapter 8, 28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And they miss the point of Job. And what you've done is you've said, I know that God was trying to tell me something here, but it was too hard to hear, and I'm going to go listen to this instead. And you've missed an opportunity to grow, and you've missed an opportunity to learn, right? So sit with the tough parts. Jumping to easy answers, short circuits, our understanding and our growth. Last point. And it's tied in with number four. Read with humility and submission. And a lot of you might think, that's weird. What does that mean? Well, it means this. If God is trying to communicate to us through these documents, we have to be ready to hear whatever it is that God wants to say to us. Whatever it is. Because sometimes God encourages us, right? And a lot of times that's what we need. We need to hear God loves you, God's on your side, God's helping you. But there are other times where God says, you've been doing this and you need to not do that. You've been living this way and that is not what I have called you to do. You have set up this idol in your life and you are supposed to be trusting in me instead of your money, instead of your career, instead of your relationship. I am what gives you salvation. I am what makes you whole. And instead, you've set up this. And sometimes we are reading through the book. Of, I love Galatians, right? Galatians is fantastic. And we read Galatians and we think, oh, those silly Galatians. What are they even thinking? What a bunch of dummies. And then we realize, no, God is trying to talk to me about what's going on in my life that's similar to what the Galatians were doing. What am I setting up in my life to say, that's what my salvation rests on. And I am trying to make myself the hero of the story. We're not the heroes of the Bible story. That's God's job, right? Our job is to sometimes get a talking to. A lot of times it's to be encouraged. A lot of times it's to be reassured that you are loved, you are saved, right? God's faithfulness is greater than your unfaithfulness. And he will always chase you down. He will always come back for you. But also there are times where, like those of us who are parents know, sometimes you have to take that child that you love very much and say, what is going through your head? Because it's not a good thing, right? Children need correction sometimes, and that's us. We have to be willing to take God's correction. We have to be humble enough to it. We have to submit to it. We have to sometimes understand that we are the Pharisees who are getting chewed out. Sometimes we are the people in 2 Corinthians who need a good talking to, right? So, all together, right, we need to have the Old Testament and the New Testament together. 
We need to remember the context, right? Trust that their situation is different than ours. We want to read each book. We want to sit with the tough parts. And we want to read with humility. Now, why are these so important? Why doesn't God make it a little bit easier for us, right? God just, and I used to pray this when I was a teenager, God just make it so clear what I am supposed to do because I'm dumb and I need you to be really direct with me. Well, God did give us his word. We got to spend time in it. We got to try and approach it the right way. Otherwise, what we might do is we might do, you know, I was showing you the light sword, the foil, and how you use that properly. And if you pick up the long sword and you use that the wrong way, you try and use it like a foil, it's going to go haywire on you, right? You can't treat a parable like the same way that you read one of Paul's epistles. You can't read the book of Genesis the same way that you read the book of Psalms. And it's important to know this, because when you go into a sword fight, your opponent knows how to use a sword. Let me tell you, when it comes to the sword of the Spirit, you better know how to use the sword because our enemy does. In Matthew 4, Jesus gets taken out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And while he's out there, Satan tempts Jesus with something that's just not quite right. It's not one of those that's like so obviously wrong. And it's like, of course I'm not supposed to do that, right? It's not like Satan says to Jesus, by the way, why don't you join my criminal empire of smuggling drugs? Jesus is like, well, that's kind of a no-brainer. Satan instead says, if you are God's son, why don't you just do this thing that God's son is supposed to be able to do? Well, why doesn't Jesus, right? Specifically, take a look at what Satan says in verses 5 through 7. The devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city, Jerusalem, and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, that's a way of saying it's in Scripture, it's in God's holy word. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Also it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. There is a saying, if you spend any amount of time in African-American churches, there is a saying that goes, even the devil reads scripture. And that's a way of saying a lot of bad stuff gets done using scripture. Just slightly wrong, right? It's a big thing in the African-American community because much of American slavery was perpetuated with using proof texts from the New Testament and the Old Testament to make slavery okay. If something as terrible as slavery can get pushed along with the help of Scripture, if the powers that are at work in this world, right, the rulers and authorities can use God's Word in that way to do that amount of evil to that number of people, 
Imagine what God, what, what evil can do in your life if the devil knows scripture better than you do. It's important for us to study and to train with the word of God, with the sword of the spirit, so that we are not led astray. Because there might come a day when someone shows up and says, well, you know, scripture says this. And don't you think that that sounds good? And maybe it's exactly not good. Tanner and the band are going to play for us. And I would ask that as they play, that we consider our own practice of studying scripture. Maybe today you need to recommit to just making scripture study a regular part of your life. Maybe you need to think to yourself, God, how have I been using your word not to grow myself into Christ-likeness, but rather to justify myself over somebody else? Or rather, I've been avoiding certain parts because I know that you're trying to convict me of something. So I'd ask that we would all study and train with this weapon, with the word of God, well enough that we are able to use it properly when the time comes. And may our reliance on the sword of the spirit help us to stand firm in the face of a well-trained enemy. Amen. Now I know that um, today's sermon was a lot, was a little bit on the longer side. And hopefully there are a lot of good challenges in it. But of course, if you have any questions, if you want to discuss any of this with me or with John, um, we are happy to talk to you. So please, anything that you want more, uh, just a little more explanation on, you are always welcome to approach me about any of your questions. All right? And with that, I would ask that you would stand and receive this benediction. Now to him who is capable of doing more than we could ever ask or imagine, to him be glory in the world and in the church, I ask that you would go today knowing that God has reached out to communicate with you. Go knowing that he is chasing you down and in his love and in his peace. Amen.